0: Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for listening. Staying subscribed. I so appreciate you sticking with me week after week. I've got another fascinating story for you now. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Buddy Levy. He is the author of many books, and his work has been featured or reviewed in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, NPR, USA Today. The Washington Post, The Washington Times, and the list goes on and on. You may also know him as a co-star on History Channel's hit docuseries, Decoded. He was also a contributing writer on the award-winning 2018 documentary, The Weight of Water. His most recent book, which of course he is here to talk about today, is called Empire of Ice and Stone, The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Karluk. And it's so great to have you with me today. Thank you for coming on.
1: Eric, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. So what inspired you to write this book? Where did you get the idea?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I guess the short version is that I started working as a journalist covering adventure sports around the world back in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And near the end of my run, following people all over the world, um, I mean, places like Borneo and um, New Zealand, uh, Argentina, I found out that there was this blind adventurer who was going to be racing in this eastern Greenland, and I wanted to see what that was all about. So I embedded myself into his team and followed him around for a couple of weeks in the mountains and fjords of Greenland. And there was a Norwegian woman... Uh, who I met there, who introduced me to the uh, book, The First Crossing of Greenland by Fritjof Nansen. And this famous Norwegian explorer named Nansen, who was just a remarkable person and um, humanitarian and won the Nobel Prize later. And I I started really getting interested in uh, Arctic exploration at the time uh, and started reading widely about it. And sidebar note, I was also um, the son of a a Nordic ski racer who uh, my father had competed in the 1956 Winter Olympics in Cortina, Italy. And he had moved us to a mountain town when I was about 10 in in Idaho. And so I kind of grew up uh, on Nordic skis and skis and, you know, the Norwegians pioneered skiing. And um, my father was always incredibly respectful and uh, had great reverence for the Norwegians and their their toughness and, and the way they were able to carve out a life in the North. And so as I started reading more and more, I came across this story about the Greeley expedition. This was back in like 2017. And I, I wrote a book called Labyrinth of Ice uh, about the Greeley expedition of 1881, And then during my research for that, I had bumped into this story of the car look, and I was really enthralled, but I had my hands full with Labyrinth of Ice, so I filed a bunch of websites and documents that I come across, and then when I finished it, uh, Labyrinth of Ice, my editor at St. Martin said, hey, you know, you seem to do well with ice, why don't you do another one? And I said, I happen to have something I just was poking around with, and so then I I. Dove in, rolled up the sleeves, and the more I learned about this story, uh, the more interesting it became. And then I just uh, I was off and 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 researching and studying and writing.
0: Oh, very cool. Yeah. So there, of course, have been many expeditions into and through the Arctic, searches for the Northwest Passage before the expedition you write about in your book takes place. What were some of the more noteworthy attempts to explore the Arctic? especially in the 19th century, and, and how do they compare to the one in your book?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's they're really different in, in certain respects, and I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, you know, when my book takes place, it's 1913 to 14. And prior to that, uh, you know, the, the, the most of the expeditions up until this time, you know, had been about, In many cases, firsts, first discoveries, first, like you mentioned, first through the Northwest Passage, um, first to the North Pole. You know, there had been a a huge race for the pole from nationalistic standpoints. And in 1909, uh, and I'll tell more about this as we go because of this man named Robert Bartlett, the captain of the Carlock. But in 1909, the pole had been claimed by Cook and by Peary. And it was generally accepted at the time that my book begins that the North Pole uh, had been claimed. And so there began to be a shift, even though there had had, prior to this, there had been a kind of scientific justification for many of these expeditions. And I say that because, you know, one of the challenges was always raising money uh, to these were very expensive pursuits. So you had to convince someone, either private entities or governments or institutions like the American Museum of Natural History or uh, the National Geographic Society, uh, to give you money for these expeditions that most often didn't end well. So it was sort of a a marketing challenge, you know. Um, But the shift, you know, uh, at around the time that, that the Canadian Arctic Expedition takes place is that it began to be more about science, though they were still searching for you know new lands, um, new discoveries, and understanding of the, the peoples that they would encounter. Uh, and so, it definitely became a shift to inquiry and ex- and exploration in addition to the to uh, to you know trying to be farthest north or to find the North Pole or. or arrive there uh, or to make your way through the Northwest Passage. Some of these things had already occurred. So it became, it started to become more about science, at least in terms of its uh, stated goals.
0: But there are also political goals. And in this expedition, Canada, while the scientific aspect was important, also important for Canada was making claims on newly discovered territory, right?
1: Absolutely. And so, yeah, that's a that's a great point. You know, there were areas north of Alaska and the Yukon where uh, the beginning of this this story takes place that were still undiscovered on the maps. So, Canada in 1913, the the expedition is called the Canadian Arctic Expedition and it was the first uh, Canadian foray into Arctic exploration at this level, and and the uh, stated goals, you know, were to explore the seas and ice north of Alaska and of the Yukon in Canada, which join, searching for new lands, engaging in anthropological, biological, oceanographic, geographic, and marine and terrestrial study, and then they were going to do anthropology and um, geography of the Coronation Gulf region above. Canada's northern coastline. But they also, there was this place called, that Robert Peary had described from the coast of Greenland on a prior expedition, Robert Peary, who claimed the North Pole. And he he said that the, he saw this landmass. And so an American expedition prior, in, or nearly at the same time, and this expedition, uh, were also trying to find this, this landmass, which would expand national territory. Uh, so there was a kind of patriotic element to this and that also explains partly I mean both men who are at the heart of this story, Vilmer Steffenson uh, who was an Icelandic American but became a Canadian citizen and Robert Bartlett, who is a Newfoundlander so there you know there was a big Canadian connection to this and and this unstated goal really of trying to find this place Crockerland if it existed and claim it for Canada.
0: Right, right. So, Wilhelmer Stefansson, one of the characters central to your story. Where did he grow up? What was his education? And how did he become interested and involved in Arctic exploration?
1: Yeah, Wilhelmer Stefansson is a fascinating character. He he is an Icelandic American but, but born in Canada and he and he became an explorer and an ethnologist, but as a boy, he um, it's it's interesting. He was na- he was nicknamed uh, he was named William, nicknamed Willie, and he legally changed his name to Vilmer uh, later as a nod to his Icelandic roots. But his friends called him Steph, and I tend to call him Steph or Stephenson. But he had grown up in kind of hard scrabble existence in North Dakota, and he had. Um, really a scant, uh, like literal one room schoolhouse kind of education where he read every single book they had by lamplight. And ultimately he was really precocious and he went to, he, he got into college very early university of North Dakota. Um, he was later, uh, booted for being truant and the, the irony was that he was actually working moonlighting as a tutor uh, at a high school because the this guy got sick. And so Stephenson um, was, he got kicked out, but he really was, um, he was working for a school and teaching. it. He very, he was a very quick study. And I think of him kind of as a chameleon. Uh, he immediately applied to the University of Iowa, was accepted and finished his degree within a year. And then the next thing you knew, he was, had a, Teaching assistantship at Harvard, but he, that's he. He kind of had a wanderlust, and by the time the the book starts, oh, and and by the way, at Harvard he got into a couple of uh, little scrapes where he was uh, accused of selling uh, exams to undergraduates, and um, he was all set to go do uh, anthropological work in. Africa, actually, so he's kind of an unlikely polar explorer, that he, but he had written some article about the origins of the blonde Eskimo, and that, that was read by another explorer who invited him, uh, this guy named Leffingwell, who invited him on an expedition, and he scrapped the Africa plan and immediately uh, decided to head north, and after that moment, he was, he was in the Arctic for, I believe, Nearly twelve consecutive years, with a few forays back to the mainlands to uh, go get more money uh, for new new expeditions. And so, by the time the book starts, he's just returned from four years in the Arctic, and he's already planned this next expedition. And that becomes important because he he arrives in back in Seattle in 1912, and then he in a little less than a year. He has conceived of and attempted to orchestrate this major expedition with multiple ships, which is a very short time. And so that's the uh, kind of the nutshell on Stephenson.
0: So Stephenson is now in charge of this new expedition, but he's not the most organized person in the world, as it is revealed over the course of the story. And even at the beginning, he's not making the best of decisions, due largely to his extreme eagerness to start. In one example, he is told that the pemmican he has ordered for the voyage has some safety issues, but he doesn't care. He doesn't want to wait, and he brushes it off.
1: Right. I'm glad you bring this up about his um, organizational skills. Um, Stephenson was attempting a really ambitious project here. It had a Northern and Southern party. It had um, 16 scientists from, you know, all they were from Scotland, Norway, New Zealand, the US, and Canada. And, you know, he was putting this together while also finishing a book about his previous four years in the Arctic called my life with the Eskimo, um, and so he was uh, spread a little thin. And meanwhile, he was meeting with the Prime Minister of Canada. He took a ship to Europe and participated in a conference there, where he was touting this expedition. Uh, and it was at that conference that he actually met Robert Peary, who who suggested that he take on Captain Robert Bartlett, who was at the time considered the greatest living ice navigator. Um, and then he's also trying to organize ships and food and clothing. And you bring up the pemmican. I mean, pemmican is this uh, vital Arctic resource for explorers, which is this uh, combination of, of fat, suet, and dried fruits. And it packs. A, it's it's dense in calorie. And there was there was as he was corresponding with the one of his co leaders. He received a telegram saying that the purity tests were coming back faulty, and part of it was that they claimed there might have been broken glass in some of the pemmican. And so uh, Stevenson, famously, wrote this telegram and said, "You know, damn the purity tests. We need to go and get this stuff sent." Um, a, a subsequent test on the pemmican revealed that they that there was no glass in it, but. There ends up later being uh, an issue which we'll call a mystery malaise or a mystery sickness um, much later when the uh, members are marooned on Wrangell Island where they all begin getting sick. And there's some question as to whether the pemmican was involved in that. But as you say, uh, he was really good, I think, in organizing small uh, groups using native guides in in moving in very small groups across ice and, you know, paddling through leads when necessary. Uh, Less skillful, it turns out, at three-ship armada expeditions that are uh, going to try to go out into the ice and then meet and reconvene. And I'll I'll add two other things about him that are interesting. Um, When the carlet left Esquimalt, British Columbia, to then uh, head up to through the Bering Strait and to Nome and Barrow. So, um, Stephenson took a separate ship, more of a luxury liner, and he brought two uh, assistants, an editor from the American Museum of History and his own personal editor. And so he was finalizing the draft of the book from his previous expedition as they're embarking on this expedition. And the other thing that happened that was problematic is that. When they got to Alaska, all the ships convened, but they had the wrong men and the wrong scientific equipment and much of the wrong food distributed between these three ships. The plan had been to travel to the east above Canada along the Alaskan shoreline and and rendezvous at this place called Herschel Island, and there became this refrain among the men because Bartlett, the captain, and a number of the scientists knew that things were disheveled and uh, overpacked and underorganized. and so they they kept saying, "We'll sort it out at Herschel Island, but they never all get to Herschel Island, so that's part of the problem
0: right. The plan was once they had rendezvoused, they were then going to break into teams. One would go north, one would go south. But yes, but so many problems from the start. Like you said, in some cases, scientists were not on the boats that their equipment was on. The, the whole thing was just so disorganized.
1: Right. So you've got the Mary Sacks, uh, these two other ships, the Alaska and the Mary Sacks, and then the Carlook. Um, and when when they left, they all convened at Point Barrow. And at that point, Stephenson did one thing that probably, uh, in the end, saves Many lives, which is that he he hired a, a group of Inuit, um, one family uh, of four, which included the husband named Kuruluk, his wife Kirik, or and they they nicknamed her Auntie, and then. Their two daughters, Helen and Mugpi, and then these two other, um, a couple of other hunters, one named Kataktovic, who ends up being really amazing and useful uh, for the entire expedition and so learned and um, skilled in ice craft. And, and then a couple of other, Stephenson brought a couple of other uh, hunters along. But what ends up happening is that all, they, as they head out to go toward Herschel Island, they're, they're hit by what was at the time the largest storm in recorded history that early, because this is like early August by this time. They, so, six, six weeks after departing Esquimalt, BC, then they're, the ships are encased in ice, right? Or the Carlook is encased in ice off the coast of Alaska. And that begins uh, this ordeal that uh, we can get into
0: back after these brief messages everybody shush william shatner has something to say cat and jethro box of oddities what do you do
1: when the woman you love dies
2: Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious.
1: Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities.
0: The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media.
1: The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilley, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Steve's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and
0: Amazon. When Johann Rall received the letter
1: on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And back to the interview. One of the things that happens early on that that really ratchets up the tension between Stephenson and and the scientists, is that in a, in a big meeting they all had, um, he, he avoided answering their questions, uh, basic questions, like where are we going exactly? And it's made worse when Stephenson actually reveals details about their expedition to the newspapers, more details than he does to the people he's, he's employed that have put their trust in him, and that includes talking about some of the dangers that they will likely face. And some of the scientists, you know, reading the papers, they were wondering what the heck is going on.
1: Yeah, that was a really intense uh, early indicator that things, not everyone was on the same page, right? So one thing Stephenson did that was very shrewd uh, was that he procured on that earlier trip to Europe, he went to London and he, he procured media rights, both moving picture and still picture and then print rights to the stories, um, essentially. And in order to do this, he told the Canadian government that he would not draw any pay for the expedition. all the other Canadian uh, expedition members who were scientists were being paid uh, for their services. And Stephenson told them very late in the game, oh, by the way, you, you can't publish this or go on a lecture tour uh, until more than a year after our return. Those rights are all mine. And so he ruffled a lot of feathers. There was just, you know, some members threatened to quit immediately. Um, and he managed, because he's a very persuasive person, he managed to say, look, you know, um, I'm not getting paid. It's going to work out. Everyone will be fine, and like you say, he was sort of duplicitous and two faced because he, he the things he was saying they were he was being interviewed at different points like Nome and Barrow, and he was telling the papers that he made some claims that were really really sort of shocking. One of them was that um, the goals of the expedition are far more are far more important than either the safety and survival of the ship or its members (laughs) and the, (laughs) the, you know, the scientists are are thinking, what, what, what are you saying? Like, and then he also mentioned that he believed pretty strongly that if the ship got encased in ice, it was going to uh, float out into the Arctic ocean, perhaps never to be seen again. And so everyone was a little bit uh, just sort of shocked by these statements. Um, And he was being partly sensational, but also there was good evidence from previous expeditions that um, that very well might happen.
0: Yeah, it's interesting too, because because there's a a library on the ship. And in that library, there's a book that's a a focal point of conversation amongst the science staff and the crew. It's a book about a ship that had suffered the same fate as the Karluk had in, in about the same place and had drifted west, like the Carlock was doing. And things had not ended up well for that ship, right?
1: Not at all. So that ship was called the Jeanette. And in 1879, it took off. And um, you know, it, it, you're exactly right. So the Jeanette um, was encased in ice and floated for a very long time, nearly a year. And it, it passed this what looks like, you know, from a distance uh, above now, when we look at global maps, it looks like a, a lot a stone or a rock above northern Siberia, which is actually this island called Wrangel Island that figures very prominently in this story. But, you know, st- once they um, are drifting, you're right, that they are reading these captain's logs from Captain DeLong, uh, and they know that ultimately that ship, and they're on the same drifting trajectory, that that ship, the Jeanette, was crushed and its mem- many many of its members perished these horrific deaths. But I should back it up a little bit to explain um, maybe what happens with Stepenson and the carluck uh, before the drift really begins in earnest.
0: That would be great, yeah.
1: Yeah, so... Very soon in, and also let me say a couple of words about, um, about Captain Bartlett. So Robert Bartlett was a very a storied explorer in his own right. And he had been with Peary to within 150 miles of the North Pole. He had captained this ship, specially built ship called the SS Roosevelt. And the Roosevelt was suited for breaking ice. And he, he guided this thing to the top of the Smith Sound and the, uh, above Northern Greenland. And then they struck out over the ice and Peary had Bartlett as his main navigator, not only in the ship, but also in the pioneer party that was running the dog sleds and and making this approach to the pole. And importantly, when Peary was within 150 miles or so of the North Pole, he sent Bartlett back to the ship saying that he wanted to take this man named Matthew Henson, who was a better dog driver. And and Bartlett admits that that was true. But the problem was that Bartlett was the much better uh, navigator and recorder with a sextant of location. And so had he taken Bartlett, I think there would have been less controversy about whether he made it to the pole or not, because if they had, in fact, then Bartlett would have proved it. So Robert Bartlett is this, this, uh, really well-known captain, and as they're really early on in the trip, Barla decide they, they get encased in ice within like about a few miles off the shore of Alaska, and then this storm, they, they're encased in essentially a, a mile square of ice, so it's like the ship can't move under its own power, and it's locked in like this giant disk of thick sea ice that is and the storm starts pushing them offshore, and Vilmer Stephenson it, it gets antsy pretty quickly as they begin leaving the shore. So after drifting for only a month, they're still within. They, they 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 sometimes move really far offshore, and then the the wind and current brings them back closer. And when they get closer, after about a month, Stephenson tells Bartlett that he is going to take two of the hunters. And the best dogs and a handful of the scientists, and go on a caribou hunt. And he, he does this against Bartlett's sort of better judgment. And then things just go south in a hurry. Um, a day after Stephenson leaves the ship, he is stranded on this really small island a huge blizzard strikes there. It's a whiteout conditions. Uh, He and and the other members that he's taken with them and the dogs are on this little Island, a few miles uh, separated from the Alaskan shoreline, but there's, there's water and they can't go anywhere. And when the fog lifts the ship, the car is gone and Stephenson um, is sitting there and they built this driftwood observing they they built a driftwood tower so he could stand up and look through binoculars and I, I always have this image of him just staring out to sea and, and uh realizing that the the ship is headed toward Siberia so he's he strikes for land once the lead of water between him, this little island in Alaskan mainland coast, and then it freezes over and he's able to get to shore. And there's another sort of curious thing I discovered as I was researching is that he, Steffensen had what I call a secret family. So he had an Inuit wife, a woman named Fanny, uh, and a small three-year-old child named Alex that he had left on his previous expedition saying, "I'll, I'll see you sometime soon, you know, a couple of years later, here he he decides that he's going to go see them, but he didn't tell anyone on board that he didn't tell them that he said he was going caribou hunting. By the time uh, this massive storm sort of subsides, um, the Karlock is drifting uh, at sometimes sixty miles a day, sometimes thirty uh, out into the Arctic Ocean towards Siberia, and Stephenson is on shore. Uh, not doing very much to try to find the ship.
0: Yeah, that that's of course a very questionable decision that Stephenson makes. He's the head of this large expedition and chooses to go himself, uh, out to hunt for meat and then he mentions he's, he's looking for caribou, which is odd. You point out because he admits at one point that the caribou had mostly been hunted out of the area. So why do you think he does it? Is it is it the wanderlust you mentioned earlier? Is, is he just tired of sitting on the ship? Is he antsy? I, I know this is all speculation, but do you think he really wanted to go visit his secret family? Or did he have a, a premonition about the ultimate fate of the ship? And did he want to get away before things got worse?
1: Stephenson's decision to leave the ship is really complex, but I think... A lot of those, a lot of the things you mentioned come to bear here. I mean, you know, he spent a lot of time in the Arctic, but he didn't, he wasn't particularly a nautical person. Um, And so I think a couple of things are operating here as they're drifting. One is the ship is beginning to get further away from shore. And there's probably a ticking clock here on when the ice is good enough to make a, a break for shore coupled with the uh, the fact that his inuit family is on the mainland and also Stevenson's very well read and he underst- he, kn- he knows full well that there's probably a 50-50 chance that this ship is going to be crushed by the ice eventually and they're all going to be stranded somewhere out on the ice and so there's a moment of kind of decision and it's pretty spontaneous i mean he tells bartlett captain Bart, he tells Captain Bartlett this, and then the next day he's out of there. And so I think partly he knew that he, if he could get to shore, there was the possibility that the other two ships, which, by the way, they all became separated like very quickly after they left Barrow, Alaska, um, that he might be able to find out the fate of those ships, um, that he might be able to at least salvage some element of his expedition um, from the land base and using those two other ships, if he could find them. Uh, and then also I, I just think he wanted to be anywhere but on that ship once it began drifting and he knew it the likely outcome. And it, it turns out that he was right. <laughs> I mean, uh, he, he got off and a number of people didn't, and a number of people did not return.
0: And the people left behind uh, resent Stephenson, right? It's it's viewed as a cowardly move.
1: Yeah, I mean, what is really great, Eric, about this uh, story is that you know I retained. There's a number of diaries, numerous diaries of members of the expedition, and so after Stephenson leaves, you get these uh, really candid diary entries, and two of the more prolific writers were um, mathematician slash meteorologist from Scotland named William McKinley, and then this uh, Norwegian young strapping uh, forester, really, but he managed to talk his way onto the trip named Bjarn Mammen, And these two left incredibly detailed diaries. And so, you know, you get these, uh, it's kind of like watching a episode of Survivor where they do the on the fly voiceovers and you know the people say what they're really thinking and so um, you know they're saying <laughs> they're saying things like yeah um you know we Stephenson has left us like lambs to the slaughter and Bjorn Mammon says at one point he's so mad because he knows that when Steph- I mean, they don't actually know where Stephenson is but they know he's not he he they look at it as if he uh abandoned his ship uh and you know Bjorn Mammon says like if I were him, I'd spend a bullet on myself, and you know, just like really aggressive, uh, angry. And you have to understand that they're they're now they're floating in a ship that is really well set up uh, in the sense that they have they have shelter, um, they have heat, they have plenty of food, they've got a lot of seal, which was another thing that Stephenson claimed he was leaving because they needed fresh meat, but they had quite a few seal on board and they had a couple of years worth of food. So, so they have time. And also now it's starting to become, um, this is, Stevenson left in September of 1913. And in those parts of the world, it begins to become what's called the long night. You know, as soon as the sun goes down for the last time, it's not going to return, say for a few months. And so, you know, cabin fever and these kind of seasonal um, anxiety disorders and depression were a very real thing on claustrophobic tight ships with people living elbow to elbow uh, every day. And so, yeah, temperatures were beginning to flare. And also uh, there was a general nervousness about the, the future because like you say, there was a library on board and most of the scientists are reading every night about previous journeys. Um, now, meanwhile, I have to tell you that, that Bjorn Momin was, you know, they weren't completely idle. So they were getting out onto the ice and, uh, and going skiing, uh, and, and training with the dogs. And Bartlett was really organized as far as making sure that they were prepared for fire, that they unloaded and reloaded stores of coal and food and gear numerous times in the event. That the ship was going to be crushed, which Bartlett sensed that was probable, and so they were keeping busy. But at a certain point, you know, the 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 lights do go out in the sense that uh, sun sets, and then they're they have to survive a couple of months of sort of terminal twilight, I'll call it, and darkness and aurora borealis, and uh, as they're waiting to see what's going to happen with this ship
0: right and i do want to ask you about the ship itself too you talked about perry ship designed specifically for breaking ice the the Carlook does not quite have the same pedigree right
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: that that, that perry ship had it's, it's it's a character all on its own
1: yeah absolutely so the car look was much smaller by comparison. It's like 128 feet. One of the, um, one of the men who was the, um, chief engineer to Monroe, when he saw the ship, he said that the engine had the power of an old teapot. Uh, and, you know, Bartlett stopped, um, their progress right when they, when he got to, they left Esquimalt, British Columbia, June of 1913, and when they got through the Bering Strait into Alaska, he he put a halt on the expedition and said, "This the ship needs retrofitting. The front, the bow is needs more sheathing to bust through ice. The engine needs to be overhauled." And so there was. It was an old. Uh, the the Karlik is the Aleut word for fish, and it had been a very successful cod and salmon fishing ship. Um, but it was about 30 years old and um, it, you know it wasn't really suited for being out and breaking ice. And so that it ends up having to uh, attempt uh, conditions for which it is not suited completely. And it, it does become a character unto itself because we we spend a lot of time on it and the men um, are spending their nights, in their cabins, and uh, you know, there's a lot of camaraderie and reverie, too. I mean, they they hold winter games during Christmas time, uh, you know, sports festivals, and uh, out on the ice. But it becomes clear that the I the is, you know, it's it's ice is encroached all around it, and is beginning to sort of impinge on uh, the hull on this wooden hull, and you get these really eerie scenes in which the, you could hear the cracking and the screaming and the wailing and the moaning of the Arctic ice, which is sort of never still. Uh, and then this, this ship that's trying to bear up to the pressure. It's almost like a living thing. And so is the ice and the ice is much more powerful. Um, and so those, yeah, those are some of the scenes that I really love describing and they're eerie and haunting and, um, there's the knowledge that as the ship is drifting out toward the Chukchi Sea and toward Siberia, that if it gets crushed, there's a sighting of this land, which is Wrangell Island, once or twice. And so there's they have a goal, essentially. But I wanted to say that while they're drifting along and while Bartlett is keeping them busy and organized um, and, and they're doing some exercise and dealing with 30 snarling sled dogs, the Inuit family are hard at work sewing Arctic clothing, um, going out seal hunting and building uh, sleds. And so everyone's attempting to do what they can with the knowledge that we're probably going to be crushed. And when they're crushed, when or if they're crushed, they're just going to be abandoned on the ice.
0: Right. And as the title of your book suggests, for listeners who haven't picked up on it already, this disastrous voyage results in the loss of life. At least some of the crew, uh, they don't survive. But this Inuit family, they were so fortunate to have them. Um, they they saved lives, right? Do, do you think more men would have died without this family on board?
1: Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, you're, I, I'm glad you bring up the cover because it, it's funny. I always... I always worry about spoilers. And, and then I was talking to my editor, and he said, uh, Look at the cover of your book. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, you know, th- things are going to unravel, and they most always do in these Arctic expeditions. But what is really amazing to me is that uh, right after the new year in 1914, uh, the ship begins to be really encroached on and, and um, fangs of ice like. Shh, shatter through the halls and Bartlett has had the good sense to send everybody down onto the ice with all this gear. And they built this camp with a, a number of igloos and this box house. And um, there's this really dramatic scene in which the uh, Bartlett stays on board and he has everyone and all the dogs and everyone abandoned ship except for him. And he's playing uh, all these records in the galley and, and, he, and he he plays, they have a gramophone, a Victorola and they're playing, he's playing these records and drinking rum, and he's after he plays each record, he frisbees it essentially into the fireplace, um, and he gets down as the water is cascading in and reaches almost deck level. He puts on Chopin's funeral march. Very, he had a flair for the dramatic, and then he walks out onto the the deck of the ship, and and right as uh, it's about to reach ice level, he just steps off, and and everyone at this ice camp they've now made is standing there and they watch, you know, first the hull and then the masts go sinking below the surface. And there's this grand puff of steam where the steam engines are just uh, filled with water. And then the garlic that's been their home for four months or so is vanished and the ice freezes over where it had been. And now they're just stranded on the ice moving on this, flow that's going where the wind and current takes it
0: we will return momentarily with the rest of the interview
1: hi
2: i'm matt albers host of the pirate history podcast the men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history you know their names captain morgan Anne Bonney, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? Their real stories. Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
0: And back once more. But but despite the fact that they were just drifting in this sheet of ice, there are educated people aboard, and they do have some some understanding of where they actually are. And they believe that this Wrangell Island is their best shot at survival, right?
1: Absolutely. So yes, while they could, uh, some of the scientists may do with the instruments that were still aboard the carlick and they've been, uh, they were able to take soundings of the depth of the wa- of the water. And they also were able occasionally to get, sextant and um, horizon and celestial readings of their location. Plus, Bartlett had seen from the crow's nest once or twice Wrangell Island, where he thought was Wrangell Island. I mean, it made the most sense given everything he knew and where they were. And it was about 100 miles away, or a little more than that, when the carlark sank. And so Bartlett determines that their only hope for survival is to prepare a kind of ice road from their place on the ice, which they dubbed Shipwreck Camp, um, this 100 miles or so to Wrangell Island. And so he begins sending out small dog teams to build. And by ice road, I mean, I mean, this is interesting because most a lot of people look at the Arctic and it seems in their mind to be this kind of sort of ice rink of flat surface that's unending, uh, which is nothing close to what it's really like out there because there's giant moving tectonic plates of ice that are moving and bashing into one another and creating these giant pressure ridges. Um, and so it's, it's not flat at all. There are, um, you know, some of these pressure ridges are over a hundred feet high and they're just rubble of broken ice. And so Bartlett has the good sense to, uh, send some of the members with dogs and often it's the, uh, it's the Inuits, Kuriluk and Kataktovic, to create this kind of trail of igloos, a relay station of igloos, maybe 10 miles apart that have caches of food. He understands that there's no way he's going to get all the food to, they don't have the dogs and the manpower to get all the food to where they need it. So they begin these relay caches. And that on some of these journeys is where some of the disasters occur, because a few of the members they sort of mutiny. They had been with Shackleton on a previous voyage called the Nimrod, um, which is not the Endurance voyage, but they believed they knew more about ice travel. But they really wanted to go on their own and, and man haul sleds rather than use dogs, and so that became a problem. And um, you've got some men going toward the wrong islands and um, being marooned there. Um, But Bartlett understands that by the time he gets to early spring, when the sun arises again, he's got to make a break for it in these relays. And he was pretty well prepared and has set up these igloos with caches of food. Problem of course, is that traveling over that kind of terrain, there are a number of things to worry about. Uh, First of all, the shifting uh, and fracturing ice underneath. I mean, on numerous occasions, uh, members are sleeping in, in igloos uh, after a 12-hour slog across the ice. And then the ice ruptures beneath the igloo in the middle of the night, and everyone is scampering, and they all are sleeping with their in their Arctic clothing for just this reason. And you have the other problem of, um, because they're killing seals along the way, polar bears are beginning to follow them. And so you've got a number of encounters with polar bears, uh, that are really, (laughs) I mean, full on attacks that, you know, swiping at the dogs and, um, having to shoot the polar bears to not also be eaten yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I know you, you, you mentioned this uh, a bit before, but if you could just give us a visual for listeners, where exactly is Wrangell Island?
1: So, If you look at, uh, if you go to the top of the Bering Strait, and Alaska is on your right to the east, and Siberia is on your left to the west, there's this place called the Chukchi Sea, uh, and Wrangell Island lies about 100 miles off of the coast of northeastern Siberia. And it is, the only thing separating Wrangell Island from the mainland is this a little body of water called the long straight. And um, Bartlett understands that that's his hope for salvation. And so you've got this incredible two, two and a half week marathon day uh, slog across this buckled and broken ice with all these near death experiences and a few of the members becoming uh, lost. Uh, And ultimately they reach this massive ice Pressure ridge that Bartlett understands. There's the only way to get through it um, is to hack like a ice road. Uh, uh, these switchbacks up and over it because it's it's like three to four miles uh, at least long, you know, running wide, and then it's really high. And so Bartlett is sending members back to shipwreck camp to try to get more food, and it's very hard to navigate in in these conditions with fog and mist. And he ultimately. Leads everyone to Wrangell Island, and they they come ashore, uh, and they're in very dire condition by the time they reach shore. Uh, many of the members, um, and I'll say most of the Anglo members, the Inuit family is in very good shape um, by the time they they reach there, but number of the members are uh, frostbitten and hypothermic, and they're uh, beginning, you know, they're they haven't been able to eat very much on the on the. Two weeks to get there, so they're fe- they're they're really in terrible condition. And Bartlett determines at that moment, the very next day, he realizes that because no one in the world at this point knows where they are. Uh, last Stephenson saw them, you know, they were fl- ten miles off the coast of Alaska, and now Lorangle Island is a proverbial needle in a haystack. But they, they they hit it. They managed to get there. And Bartley realizes that the only hope for everyone's survival is for him to go with Katak Tobik, the youngest um, and strongest Inuit hunter, and strike south across Long Strait to northern Siberia, where, if he makes it there, he will attempt about another 500-mile trek overland in unknown terrain to him amongst people he cannot communicate with, to eventually, if all goes well, make it back to Alaska, where he can send a telegram to the Canadian government, and hopefully, hopefully, by the coming summer, effect a rescue attempt, because the window of open water around Wrangell Island uh, in 1914 is really short, you know, it, it can be a couple of months, or it can be a couple of weeks, depending on the season. And so it's really a race against time. And once they arrive on Wrangell Island, I'll say that things devolve into something of a uh, Lord of the flies on ice, we'll call it. <laughs> um, Bartlett leaves them with some very specific instructions, uh, which is to try to set up a couple of different camps. And he tells them where, he hopes to send rescue ships the next summer if he makes it, uh, and so one of them is on the southern tip of uh, this island, and which is only—I mean, it's like 100 miles or 90 miles wide, and maybe 50, 60 miles top to bottom. It's not a large island, but he he instructs the members to set up camps maybe 10 to 20 miles away and and hunt. And try to survive. Uh, he sends a couple of the other members to try to make it back to shipwreck camp for more food and, and fuel and pemmican. But the minute that he leaves, many of the members that were not doing very well physically begin to suffer this strange bloating malaise that um, McKinley describes as a mystery sickness. And You know, they do not know. It doesn't appear to be scurvy, uh, but because they've been getting plenty, they they do have vitamin C and they've been getting plenty of um, seal meat. Um, But it's debilitating to the point where many of them are uh, on the northern shore of Wrangell Island. They set up this camp and one of them they dub hospital igloo because it's where all the the, uh, infirm members have to try to regroup and recover. And then there's this, so I, I toggle back and forth between these two amazing experiences, which are the members who are a mix of, you know, scientists, uh, hired crewmen, and then this Inuit family, what their ordeal is on Wrangell Island, which is significant. And then Bartlett's epic journey to try to make it back to mainland Russia, mainland Siberia, across and uh, over to uh, Alaska to get word uh, that we need to send rescue ships. And so things begin to move very quickly um, back and forth between those really dramatic experiences, one of marooned shipwrecked survivors and the other of uh, two men on a race across the ice and then across land to try to save the others. It's it's very moving.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. A situation arises during this part of the story where a man is accused of murder. Can you explain the circumstances that led to that accusation?
1: Yeah, that is one of the more troubling episodes in this entire story. And I have to say it, its resolution is hazy, we'll call it, Um, because what ends up happening is one of the um, crew members, this man named uh, Breddy, B-R-E-D-D-Y, he he had been somewhat depressed on board ship, uh, and he was what was called a fireman, so he was a stoker of the steamship engine and also knew about keeping the ship's fires going and also how to extinguish them. But um, so Bredi is living in one of the tents, this is on the Northern end of Wrangell Island called Icy Spit when they first arrived and, um but they, they later moved to a place called Waring Point where they were subsisting on crowbills, these auk birds, they were shooting different birds that were living in the, in the cliffs. And then the, Inuit family would go hunting for seal and walrus. Um, But Breddy had a kind of darkness to him. But once he got off the ship, he seemed to get a bit better. And and there were reports in in numerous uh, of the diaries saying um, Breddy seems to have improved now that he's on land and is not on the ship. But oddly, uh, one night he told one of the tent mates, this man named Ernest Chafe, um, who was going hunting the next morning, he said, I'm going to clean my gun in the morning and then I'll go hunting. And you've got these two separate tents that um, they had brought from the Karlaq that are dome tents, and they are in very close proximity to one another. And so early in the morning... One morning, you hear they, everyone hears this gunshot, and William McKinley, and who had been in another tent, comes running over, and the members of the other tent say, "Bready has shot himself," and so McKinley goes over and uh, assesses the situation, and, and sure enough, uh, Bready is lying there with a bullet hole through his eyeball, and uh, McKinley takes a great deal of time just sort of describing and writing in his journal, the scene that what he sees. Um, And, you know, there's a gunpowder near his eye and uh, the bullet has passed through his brain. And then the gun is to his side, which McKinley remarks seemed odd. Like it's not in his hand and it's in the, it's, it's, he was right-handed. So they, they try to figure out like, why is it over on the other side? They take, from the tent and move him outside. And then they drag him up to a place, maybe 150, 200 feet from the tent and and bury him. There becomes a big discussion among um, a number of the members who were not in the tent because this man named Williamson says uh, they had had, he and Breddy had had beef before. They had had disagreements, but Many of these members had had disagreements, um, but after John Hadley, uh, this the elder he's an elder man who was hired on to come along and McKinley. Cons- they, they sort of get together and talk about what they witnessed inside this tent, and they both don't buy that it was well either an accident cleaning the gun or suicide. Those two ideas are are floated around, but. McKinley and Hadley do something unusual, which is they, they sort of go up and half-bury Brady and then really look at the situation and his body position. And they both determine independently in their journals that they think Williamson murdered Brady. And it's so unusual because, like, you know, the expedition leader... So Stephenson is nowhere to be found. He's, you know, no one knows where he is. Bartlett's gone. So you've got this second in command, John Monroe, and he actually wasn't, he was somewhere else down, you know, at the time he had headed south to go check on these other members. And so you've had this very tragic episode where some of the members are writing in their journals that it might, it must be murder. And the person is living 10 feet away. And so it's really tense But they essentially just take the guns away from that tent and uh, say, We don't want any more, we don't want to hear any more business about, you know, with you and firearms. And uh, McKinley later writes in his journal that something to the tune of, um, Life goes on and we'll never know the truth.
0: Hmm. Uh, Wrangell Island is is normally full of polar bears and seals, right? But but the men marooned there were not were not able to take advantage of this bounty of game.
1: Yeah, I mean the conditions were really difficult. The polar bear were still when they arrived there is in March, and um, the polar bears were still uh, quite a bit out on the ice because they're they're where the seals are, and so these members are so ragged by this time and um, and fatigued and diminished that. They're, and and hunting is hard, so they're trying to get they're trying to get seals. They're trying to get um, they actually build a um, uh, Kuriluk and McKinley build a skin kayak for when the waters begin to open up a little bit in the late spring, early summer, and and they'll be able to potentially get walrus. Um, but that's a few months away, and so they end up at this place called Cape Waring, where. Uh, like I said, there are thousands, millions actually of birds that are nesting in these high cliffs, but the cliffs are uh, arduous to get to. And maybe some of them are five miles from the camp and some of them are, are farther, like 10. And so, you know, a day of hunting to go there is exhausting. And then you're, you're, you're trying, to, they didn't unfortunately bring shotguns. So they mostly have, or sh- shotguns were left on the carler, Uh and they mostly have pistols and rifles. And so they're they're having to resort to shooting as many birds as they can, which don't feed a lot of people. But I, I will say that the Inuit family becomes incredibly industrious, and Kuraluk makes bows and arrows out of, of driftwood, is able to shoot some birds, and the kids uh, and auntie devised this fishing technique using sewing pins uh, tied to sinew for line. And they find these little creeks that are running down um, from the mountainous uh, shorelines uh, of Wrangell Island into the bays. And then there's these Arctic cod that live there. And so they're able to start catching fish, but this is pretty late in the game. And so by this time they're strewn out all over this Island and many of the members are essentially starving to death fearing they may have to spend the coming winter uh, on this island where it's known that temperatures reach you know below 50, 60 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. and the prospects are, are very grim and you've got these uh, journal entries basically saying, you know if if help doesn't come, uh, we're done for.
0: Right. Well one of the really interesting things for me in reading this, was witnessing the transformation that took place for some of the scientists on board. At the very beginning of their voyage, they didn't want to help the crew with any manual labor. They thought it was beneath them. They were sunning themselves on deck during days when it was in the 40s. But but by the end, they were scratching and clawing to survive, right? To stay alive, right along with everyone
1: else. You're absolutely right. Um- The transition and transformation, I think, you know, um, is one of the things that interests me most about these kinds of um, stories and these kinds of expeditions is how human beings deal with adversity, hardship, suffering, and what, you know, who becomes leaders and who, you know, sort of shrinks as, as the conditions become more and more difficult. And so you're right. I mean, there are a few members who I really mainly because their journals are so elaborate and, and detailed and beautiful. But, you know, if you take the Scottish school teacher, William McKinley, for example, I mean, he he, he was literally a math teacher at a, effectively a high school when he started. And, and then in a year he's become a dog sled driver, uh, an ice navigator, a leader of men, a hunter. He did a number of solo journeys to the southern part of Wrangell Island alone become snowblind, you know, trying to see how the other members are faring and to bring them some food. And people are thrust together and they end up having to make decisions now that are more communal. Um, There's a breakdown or two where there's some thieving of food. And in a situation like this, you know, in other expeditions that I've written about and encountered, especially if they were military, one or two times caught thieving food and, you know, you're, you're being executed. So um, there's a little bit of food theft and then um, they end up sort of having a big meeting and coming together. But it's true, you know, I think people, you really see who they are when they're pushed to these levels of extreme. And that's, one of the things that has always drawn me to such stories to see what uh, people are made of and their their innovative capabilities to either you know hunt food survive and also the i'm I'm intrigued by and impressed by and moved by the what humans are capable of given really extreme conditions how they they sometimes surprise themselves with what they're able to do both physically and also uh, mentally and emotionally. And all of those are at trial in this expedition, the physical, the mental, the emotional, it's all there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there are some very poignant, bittersweet moments in the story as well. And for me it was that young Norwegian ski instructor who, who wrote so eloquently in his diary. That's got to be so rewarding for you to to be able to incorporate these these types of personal accounts into the book. it 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 really humanizes the story
1: absolutely. I mean, there have been more than one time when I've sort of broken down, you know, in um at the keyboard because you're you're really living with them. And I have to say it's what I try to do uh, when I write these books is to bring the reader there so that they, they know these—we'll um, call them characters—but they're they're human personalities who who lived in this world, and you you're with them in really intimate and and trying moments when, uh, in certain cases, you sort of know it's their last breaths. You know they they'll um, they're writing in igloos or in these wall tents of canvas, uh, their last installment and it just sort of abruptly trails off and, you know, then, then the rest is reported by others who were there. Uh, but yeah, you get to know them really well. Uh, and you, you feel like, you know, you're, you're pulling for them, even though you sense that the end is nigh. Uh, and in the case of Momin, I'm glad you brought him up again. I mean, he, he writes about all these dreams that he had because his, his polar comrades, his countrymen, uh, Amundsen and Nansen are these absolute giants of exploration and legends in his country, and he he writes about his dreams uh, of be of surviving this ordeal and then coming home and starting his own expedition and then returning with the Norwegian flag flapping in the Arctic breeze and uh, and being a national hero, and that's juxtaposed with with what's going on uh, around him. Um, there are instances in which, you know, men perish and uh, don't even have the the energy to move them from the tent for a few days because they are themselves so emaciated. And, um, you know, that so, some very sort of ghoulish uh, scenes in which, you know, you're sleeping next to a dead person and you're the only one there, uh, uh, you know. And so, yeah. And, and then there are like you say um there are tender moments part of what draws me to these stories too is the is that there's so much there can be deep heroism, camaraderie and uh, human connection especially when you see men uh, nurturing one another almost like babies at the very ends of things um and it you you really feel like you're right there and it's you're watching it happen
0: yeah so Stephenson doesn't forget, right? Completely Bartlett and the rest of the the ship, he he does make an attempt to help from afar.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, Stephenson doesn't try very hard, in my opinion. Um, I mean, he's a realist. I will say, I will give this to Stephenson. Um, he understands the conditions and the region extremely well. So. When he becomes separated from the Karluk, Stephenson is a man of action. And so he immediately makes it to shore, reconvenes with, the, uh, with this guy, Rudolph Anderson, who is the leader of the Southern party, uh, kinda, and, and then begins to retrofit his own new Northern party, he calls it. And so he takes some of the scientists, kind of commandeers one of the ship's, uh, he has a blank checkbook from the Canadian government, uh, which he uses to purchase another ship. And then he goes and sees his Inuit wife and son, tells them he'll see them again soon and heads b- back out on the ice. He, In that time, he writes a letter to the Canadian government, but he's very clever because Where he is in the world, you you can only send letters by dog sled team like that go back to Barrow, Alaska. And it takes like a month or something to get there. And so he understands he tells them the Carlic is gone and I'm going back out on the ice. No, and And as he writes this, he knows that by the time he gets the response, he will already be gone and back out on the ice. And with this smaller, more manageable um, scientific party. And that's exactly what he does. And, and so we do cut, we do return to Stephenson. Um, but then Bartlett's really the one who's responsible for rescue if it's going to come. And I'll tell you, he makes it back to Siberia. And there's an incredible, I mean, it's really a book in itself that this story of his journey with Kadoktovik being pursued by polar bears and then encountering these friendly uh, native Chuchki people who really help them move back along the Siberian coastline for, it takes them a long time and 700 miles and Bartlett finally makes it back to Alaska where he sends uh, telegram word to the Canadian government and he begins immediately to spend every waking hour. And he's in bad shape physically and mentally by the time he gets to back to Alaska, but he recovers in time to organize a rescue attempt. And he brings to bear a, a number of ships from that the US is in charge of, and then even Russian icebreakers and, and tells them, you know, there are a couple of dozen members of this expedition on Wrangell Island stranded, most likely suffering, and we need to get there uh, before the season closes. And so at that point, Bartlett and, and Stephenson are are worlds away. I mean, Stephenson's back out on the ice, doesn't really return. And and, and by the way, World War uh, one has uh, broken out, like right while Bartlett is um, making it to uh, Alaska and trying to effect this rescue, and that plays a role because the couple of the the Russian icebreakers are are recalled uh, and ha- uh, when they learn that they're at war. Um, but you've got the sort of it really does become. Um, a race against time because I'm moving back and forth at that point between it. Think of it like scenes in the movie between these bedraggled members, uh, subsisting on Wrangell Island, chewing on uh, seal blubber and intestines and Bartlett frantically trying to organize these rescue ships as the ice is beginning to fill the waters and encroach again.
0: Right, right. There's a lot that we haven't covered today, including the fate of the small party that decided to head out on their own. You know, stories like that. But but I do want to ask you about Bartlett and Stephenson after this is all over. Bartlett held some resentment towards Stephenson for what he did. He believed that Stephenson had abandoned the ship, basically. But how are Bartlett and Stephenson ultimately viewed in history for their... Roles in, in this ill-fated voyage, and does Bartlett ever publicly address his concerns with Stephenson?
1: Right. Yeah. That the legacy of these two is really interesting. Um, you know, Bartlett makes no uh, uh, bones about uh, slamming Stephenson in his own writing on the ship during the drift, and then and but but after. Um, after he makes it back, he's a little more circumspect. It's really interesting. Bartlett writes his own account uh, of the voyage of the Carla. And he, you know, is not as critical of Stephenson in print as he is privately. Um, And it's really, you you know, I have a number, a bunch of this in the epilogue where Bartlett is still corresponding with some of the other members who survive. And he's, he's he's livid because when stephenson gets back he writes a really long book and it's called the friendly arctic which everyone thinks is quite ironic um because you know the arctic has taken a lot of lives i mean in the in the period usually 50% uh, mortality rate was not uncommon so there was a very real chance if you went on one of these expeditions you weren't coming home um but Bartlett reads this friendly Arctic and which has Stephenson's own account of everything that happened. Well, the problem was Stephenson wasn't there for anything that happened on Wrangell Island. So he doesn't really know, but he speculates and he says some kind of offhanded things like, I don't know what the problem was. It was, you know, I made it to shore. Uh, these these guys, Bartlett could have taken them across long strait. traveling over 100 miles of ice is not a difficult thing, um, you know, forgetting. The fact that they've done this ordeal to get to Wrangell Island in the first place, and no one is in any condition to go another hundred miles across a broken, moving ice. Um, but, you know, Bartlett undergoes a, an inquiry initially about um, his decision to take the Carlock offshore, which was, uh, Stephenson actually encouraged him to do it. And, and Stephenson ultimately uh, does say, in print, that, you know, the decision to go offshore was mine, and it was probably the worst decision that I'd made in the entire expedition. But yeah, it, ultimately, Stephenson ends up being somewhat reviled, at least by everyone, every survivor of the Karlick expedition, but he goes on to become a really well-known um, scientist. He, ironically, he never, he never goes back to the Arctic after he comes back this time. He organizes uh, yet another, in 1921, I believe, he organizes, um, about a decade later, at any rate, he organizes another expedition to Wrangell Island, uh, in which he does not participate, and more people die. So, history looks at him in, a, in interesting ways, because his contributions, scientifically, are considerable. And, you know, he did... Uh, The finds of the uh, expedition itself end up, you know, they they do discover a few more islands um, and, you know, they have ethnological um, discoveries from living for four years with various peoples of the region. Um, But to me, it always comes down to the kinds of choices that these men made in the moment. And that's how I look at it. And it's, uh, it's pretty clear to me that I'd rather have, have, um, have a pint with Bartlett than with Stephenson.
0: Yeah, me too. (laughs) So, yeah, I do want to mention to listeners, you have a website, buddylevy.com for people who want to check out your books. And I also want to ask you if you don't mind, um, to tell us a bit about the river of darkness. Which, which is a book of yours that, that came out last year. Could you give us a, a synopsis?
1: Yeah. So um, River of Darkness is a story um, of the first Europeans to descend the entire length of the Amazon from its headwaters in uh, Ecuador all the way to the Atlantic. Uh, and it's a conquistador story. This took place in um, 1541 and two mainly, but it's an amazing story because, you know, it, it has the Pizarro brothers, the the famed brothers of doom, Francisco Pizarro and a number of others, Gonzalo, his other brother, who embark on this um, journey looking for El Dorado, um, the golden man, and also for cinnamon. Um, and they end up uh, just on this incredible Voyage. It's it's interesting. Like in, in similar way, it it started as one thing and ends up as another. It starts as a voyage of of discovery and ends up as a voyage of of survival. But uh, it's a really interesting story because it's you know it's really connected to that um, search for El Dorado, which reached a kind of apex uh, in around Bogota, Colombia, and Quito, Ecuador around this time. Um, Francisco Pizarro has just recently, uh, you know, sort of conquered the Inca. And then you've got these men uh, floating down this massive waterway and encountering all of these previously unencountered by uh, Europeans, uh, tribes dwelling on the on the banks of the Amazon. And it's just incredible that, that anyone makes it. And, um, and the stories that they, they tell are really, really compelling. And, you know, so, uh, yeah, it's also, it's been the feature of a couple of, um, history channel docu-series that are upcoming. I've actually been, uh, been, I've I've filmed the sequences for two of them, um, uh, History's Greatest Mysteries hosted by Lawrence Fishburne and then uh, another one. But uh, I don't know about their air dates, but um, yeah, there, there's a lot of interest in, you know, in the Amazon. There are still unencountered tribes living there. It's a very amazing place. And and River of Darkness um, tells a particular story about Francisco Oriana and the uh, the descent down this um Greatest river in the world, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, that sounds cool. You, you write history books where, where the drama, the, the conflict happens on water, oceans, rivers. Is there something about water that that draws you in? interests you.
1: That's a great question. You know, I grew up in a mountain town, so I've always been drawn to uh, which the mountain town of Sun Valley, Idaho, is at six thousand feet, and um, so I've always been. Drawn to mountains and river settings. Uh, And also, I traveled to Alaska a number of times on um, like fly fishing trips. Um, But I have to say, um, once I went to Greenland, you know, that the north, that's one element of it. But also, so it isn't water specifically, I suppose, creates levels of danger (laughs) uh, that you know, people have to contend with. And so um, it's not only water, but it's, it's that it's where the water is heading and it's the difficulty in moving uh, across and through and over the water, which um, is rife with all sorts of impediments, whether they're, you know, creatures that can eat you or flip over your canoe or kayak or whether it's frozen uh, Arctic seas that are their own kind of animal that that is um something that you have to be very fortunate and skillful to traverse you know I, I guess i'm drawn to danger to some degree
0: right right yeah well gosh this has been so great thank you for joining
1: us today eric's been my great pleasure and uh, I, I really enjoyed talking to you
0: again i have been speaking to buddy levy He is author of Empire of Ice and Stone, The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Karluk. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for putting up with my cold today. My voice is a little out of whack, but we all have to carry on, right? Have a safe tomorrow.